$5,000. That's the average amount of money people in the U.S. are now spending on gas in a year. Five grand. That's crazy. If you drive, you have to download Upside, the free app that gives you cash back every time you get gas. That's right. You can earn real cash back with Upside just by buying the gas you're already buying. You can literally start earning cash back today. I use Upside every time I fill up, and I've already made around two, $300. You're putting gas in your car anyway. Why not get real cash back? If you like free money, download Upside. I'm saving the cash I earn from using Upside to help pay for a vacation later this year. Download the free Upside app now to earn cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code SAVE to get an extra 25 cents per gallon on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is yet another one where the system frankly just failed. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Jeanette Maples never really had it easy. Her mother, Angela, came from a dark past of murder and abuse. Angela's own mother was murdered when she was five, and her father would reportedly abuse her and her siblings by withholding food, and if he ever caught them sneaking any, he would beat them. When Angela graduated high school, she got the hell out of Dodge as quickly as she could, but that meant running off with a carnival worker, which resulted in getting into some pretty heavy drugs. Soon, Angela met Anthony, who would wind up becoming Jeanette's biological father. The pair had three kids together, two boys, and then Jeanette. Nothing was ever really calm or peaceful in that house, and in 1995, when Jeanette was only one and a half, California DHS was called, and all three kids were removed from the house due to neglect, abuse, and drug use. Anthony went to jail for some time while the three kids went into foster care, but Angela maintained some form of normalcy when it came to the reunification process with Jeanette. She stuck to her scheduled visits, moved out of her car, and got a job. And in 2001, after spending five and a half years in foster care, Jeanette was reunited with her mother and her sister, who was three years younger than her and had been born a few years after Angela's other three kids had been taken away. Jeanette was the only of the original three kids who were returned to Angela's care. Her two older brothers had actually written letters to the judge presiding over the case, asking not to be reunited with their mother and to remain in foster care, and their wishes were respected. Around this time, Angela began dating a man named Richard, whom she met through his cousin. By 2002, they were married. This was Jeanette's second shot at having a father since her biological father hadn't kept in much touch. Two years after gaining a father, Jeanette welcomed another sibling, a little brother, and from the outside looking in, it seemed like she was getting her family back. Sure, it was a different dad, and sure, they had different siblings, but those were all things that she had lost a long time ago, and having this opportunity of a new, healthy family dynamic seemed great. A year after the birth of her baby brother, her stepdad Richard was offered a truck driving job out in Oregon, and they didn't skip a beat. The family packed up everything they owned and moved north. At this point, Jeanette is nine and starts attending Cascade Middle School in Bend, Oregon, and 
everyone notices her, but not for the right reasons. It's reported that she was always wearing old, worn-out clothes, which being in middle school caused her to get bullied. But even with the bullying, Jeanette loved school. She lived for it, especially writing. But as time went on, the students and teachers all began to notice that when the bell rang and it was time to go home, Jeanette's demeanor would completely change. She did not want to go home. Over time, Jeanette was able to make some friends at school, and they were amazing. They loved her for exactly who she was, creative and shy, and without a mean bone in her body. One day in the seventh grade, when Jeanette was changing for gym class, a friend noticed bruises all over her stomach and legs. When she confronted her about them, Jeanette just told her that she had fallen down. Her friend wasn't buying it and pressed Jeanette for answers, and she finally told her friend that her mom was abusing her. Jeanette's friend encouraged her to tell someone about it, that there were people who could help, but Jeanette was too afraid. She was worried that if her mother ever found out that she told anyone about the abuse, that it would just get worse. Her friend couldn't just sit around and do nothing, though, so she did what any 7th grader would do, and she told her parents. Those parents called Oregon's DHS to report the abuse. In fact, they called more than once, but according to them, were told that secondhand accounts of abuse weren't enough to warrant an investigation. When that wasn't enough, they had their daughter report the abuse to the middle school, who then asked Jeanette about it. Jeanette confirmed to the school that the reports of abuse at home were true. Considering all of that, I was only able to find one single report from KVAL on Oregon's DHS actually making a home visit to the house where her mom, stepdad, and two younger siblings lived with her. When they got there, Angela told the DHS workers that Jeanette was a compulsive liar. And that was kind of it. Everyone's concerns for Jeanette grew. She continued to show up to school and run down clothes. She was always hungry. She was losing weight. And as always, she never wanted the school day to end. And their concerns only got worse when after she graduated the eighth grade, she was pulled out of public school and registered as a homeschool student. Now no one would be able to check up on Jeanette, even if it was only during the school day when she had reliable adults, good friends, and a steady source of food. In August of 2009, Jeanette's family was packing up for a move to Eugene, Oregon, when her stepmother, Lynn, who wasn't allowed to visit often, saw her for the first time in a long time. Lynn wasn't allowed to talk to her, as Jeanette had been told to sit in the corner alone, but from a distance, she noticed that her granddaughter had a busted lip and that it looked like someone had yanked on her hair. According to Oregon Live and the register guard, after packing up wrapped up for the day and Lynn was finally permitted to hug her granddaughter goodbye, she was shocked at how thin she was underneath the clothes that concealed her weight loss. She was able to quickly ask Jeanette what had happened to her lip, and just like Jeanette had told her friend years earlier, she told her grandmother that she had fallen down. When Lynn left the house, she called Oregon DHS to report suspected abuse, doing everything she could to stay anonymous. In case it was ever revealed who called, she didn't want Angela or Richard to stop her from seeing the kids the very few times they allowed for it. In September of 2009, the family made that move to Eugene and into a house in the 150 block of Howard Avenue. Her 12-year-old sister was enrolled in public school where she thrived, but Jeanette remained home alone with her mother. 
On December 4th, Lynn got a call from her son Richard. It wasn't a normal phone call. This time, he was calling his mom to tell her about how upset he was because he had just found Jeanette drinking from the toilet. Five days later, Jeanette would be dead. Just before 8 p.m. on December 9th, 2009, Lynn got another phone call. This time, it was from Angela. She was frantic and saying that Jeanette was cold and that they couldn't wake her up. And naturally, Lynn asked if she had called 911, but they hadn't. According to the register guard, Angela told her mother-in-law that she hadn't called 911 because she didn't want to go to jail. Lynn told Angela to give the phone to her son, and she told him that if he didn't hang up and call 911, that she'd be on her way over with the police herself. He hung up and proceeded to call 911 and report that his stepdaughter wasn't breathing. That was it. Lynn called back to make sure they'd made the call for help, and in this conversation, she says that Angela told her that she had whipped Jeanette and just got carried away. Medics arrived on scene at 8.04 p.m. to find Jeanette injured and unconscious in the back of the living room with wet hair and no shirt on. While it's not specified what her injuries were, the register guard reported that the circumstances of her death affected detectives working the case. Another officer told the outlet that he was disturbed by Jeanette's wasted and battered appearance and that Angela's claim that Jeanette was simply asleep on the living room couch when she stopped breathing just didn't add up. The officer tells the register guard that he immediately suspected abuse and walked outside to call a supervisor to make sure that he knew. And for the first time in this man's 18-year career in law enforcement, he signed off of his shift and cried. We still don't know yet what kind of state Jeanette was in when she was found, but we can gather that it was a lot more than her being cold and not waking up. Jeanette wasn't breathing and had no pulse. According to KVAL, authorities performed CPR and intubated her on the scene. Her fragile body was rushed via ambulance to Sacred Heart Medical Center, but it was too late. Shortly after arriving to the hospital, Jeanette was pronounced dead. It was obvious to everyone who saw her body that Jeanette had been murdered. Jeanette's step-grandmother Lynn rushed to the hospital, as did Angela and Richard, and when they got the news, Lynn begged the officers to let her see her granddaughter one last time. The register guard reports that the officer there convinced her that it wasn't a good idea and told her that it was the most horrific thing he had ever scene, telling Lynn that Jeanette's battered and emaciated body now only weighed 50 pounds. The average 15-year-old girl weighs 150 pounds. Jeanette weighed less than half of that at the time. To put 50 pounds into perspective, my very average six-year-old weighs exactly 50 pounds, and Jeanette was nine years older than him when she died. It took no time at all for police to figure out what had happened and at the hands of whom, and while still at the hospital, both Angela and Richard were taken into custody, but not before Richard changed the narrative. At the hospital, he told his mother that he was the one who whipped Jeanette and had gotten carried away with it, seemingly unaware that Angela had already confessed this to Lynn earlier. 
Richard had been recovering from open heart surgery following a heart attack and had been almost bedbound since. Lynn couldn't imagine he would be able to whip Jeanette, but doesn't believe he's totally innocent either, especially considering just five days ago he had called her after catching Jeanette drinking from the toilet. Jeanette's 12-year-old sister and 5-year-old brother were immediately removed from the home and taken into protective custody and placed in foster care. Every single one of Angela's five children have now, at one time or another, been taken from her care. On December 10th, Jeanette's biological father, Anthony, who has seemingly managed to clean up his life, got the call that his daughter had died. Early court documents obtained by Oregon Live report that her death was deemed as a result of intentional maiming and torture. He hadn't seen or heard from his daughter in nearly a decade, but says his heart sank. The term maim was so specific that I decided to look up the legal definition, and the legal definition of maiming is the infliction of a serious bodily injury, including mutilation or any harm that limits the victim's ability to function physically. Jeanette wasn't just tortured, she was maimed. On the same day, Angela and Richard had their first day in court where they were both charged with aggravated murder, which means in Oregon, they both may ultimately face the death penalty if found guilty. The director of Oregon's DHS orders an internal investigation into any of the caseworkers who were ever involved in reports of abuse concerning Jeanette, which we know means an investigation into abuse complaints that date back to her days in middle school. Friends, parents of friends, school officials, and even Jeanette's family all tried to save her from years of torture and abuse, and not a single one of their reports were enough to save her. Her step-grandmother tells Oregon Live that she wishes she hadn't called DHS and had just called the police, but it's too late for Jeanette, and Lynn had simply trusted a system, a system that she never could have imagined would fail in the way that it did. Two days following her death, after investigators cleared the crime scene, a candlelight vigil was held in front of the home she was tortured in. KVAL spoke to some of the people there, one of whom reported that Jeanette was quiet and that they always knew something was wrong. One neighbor at the vigil said that she rarely saw Jeanette, but when she did, she would be standing by the side of the house holding her dog, and when the neighbor would wave, Jeanette would turn around and walk away. Another neighbor didn't even know Jeanette lived there. Jeanette was so secluded in that house with no one to talk to and nowhere to go that people who lived around her didn't even know she lived there. Jeanette's step-grandmother was given the task of clearing out the house once police had wrapped up the crime scene and what she found inside shocked and appalled her. Inside the home, she found kitchen cabinets stocked full of food, but padlocked from the outside. One of the bedrooms was littered with blood spatter all over the walls, ceiling, and floor. And next to the bed that her son shared with Angela, she found a small piece of cardboard. That piece of cardboard was Angela's bed. It was given to her in an effort to keep the blood from her repetitive wounds from staining the carpet. On December 16, 2009, seven days after her death, Jeanette Maples was finally laid to rest. 100 people attended, but none of them were her parents, her biological father, or any of her siblings.
Some of her poetry was read, one of which was a poem about how if she could be anyone, she would be her mother. Despite or even because of her abuse, Jeanette wanted nothing more than her mother's love and approval. The day of their daughter's funeral, Angela and Richard were officially arraigned on their charges of aggravated murder, and Angela was additionally charged with tampering with physical evidence. They both pled not guilty, which means this is going to trial. Two months later in 2010, Jeanette's parents were back in court, but this time it wasn't for the murder charges. This time it was to determine whether or not the other two children in their care would be removed from their custody. They were already in emergency placement, and DHS, the same DHS that had failed Jeanette, said that their ultimate goal for the remaining two children was to have them put in a permanent placement. Lynn, the youngest child's biological grandmother, was vocal about wanting to take in both children, but as far as I can tell, that wasn't considered. The following month, the Register Guard reports that a media request to unseal the affidavit containing details about Jeanette's murder would likely be denied, citing a local judge. The affidavit was said to contain sensitive information from young sources, the young sources being Jeanette's little sister and little brother. And that denial said more than nothing at all. This means that while her little brother and sister were seemingly thriving, they were witness to the cyclic maiming and torture of their older sister. Five months pass as we wait for any more information on the trials of Richard and Angela, and finally in August, there's an update. Angela's trial is set for February 1st of 2011, and she may still face the death penalty if found guilty. Richard's trial is set for May 3rd, 2011, but unlike his wife, he will not face the death penalty. It's reported that the facts of the investigation did not warrant it in regards to his individual trial. And while we've yet to find out what horrors this trial will bring, it's clear to everyone that Angela was her daughter's primary abuser. There are few updates between the setting of their trials and the trial dates themselves, other than an article by the Register Guard that talks about the struggles Angela's defense attorney has had in working with her, citing her crying and moods as an issue. She wound up being medicated by a defense psychiatrist and worried that delving deeper into her mental state over the past few years may trigger a mental decline. If it did, it didn't impact the trial because on February 1st, 2011, it began as scheduled. But instead of sticking to her original plea, this time Angela pled guilty. If she thought that would stop the trial, she was wrong because the jury still had to decide her fate. And that meant that they had to hear everything Jeanette went through from start to finish. And it was horrifying. One of the first people to testify was Angela's younger sister. The jury watched in shock as she recounted the heinous abuse taken out on her sister with little to no emotion. Her sister testified that her mother wouldn't let Jeanette talk to her or her little brother, and that for the most part, she was locked up in the back bedroom. And this was nothing new. It dated back as far as when they lived in California. While Jeanette was trapped in that back bedroom alone, her little brother and sister were free to roam the house, watch TV, play video games, and go to public school. She testified that her mother used to punish Jeanette by depriving her of food and water and would retaliate against Jeanette if she ever caught her siblings trying to sneak her something to drink. This sheds a little light on the desperation Jeanette was in just five days prior to her death when Richard caught her drinking from the toilet. 
Her sister testified more to the abuse, saying that her mother would often hit Jeanette with shoes and pop her in the mouth with the back of her hand, causing her to bleed. You'll recall Jeanette's stepmother asking about that busted lip. It didn't end there, though. According to her sister, Angela would make Jeanette stand in the corner on one foot with her hands in the air, and if she ever caught her in a lie, would force her to eat hot peppers. The hot peppers were also confirmed by Richard's cousin, who, according to Oregon Live, introduced the two around the same time Jeanette was placed back into Angela's care. This means that Jeanette's abuse had been going on the entire time. A week prior to Jeanette's death, her little sister noticed that she was acting strange, and that's when her mom showed her a hole in the back of Jeanette's head. Her sister testified that her mother told her if someone is stabbed in the back of the head with a branch, it would cause brain damage. Around the time of this incident was the last time someone called DHS to report Jeanette's abuse. Had anyone visited the home, they would have seen her battered, bruised, and emaciated. At one point, Angela claimed that she didn't do the wound on the back of her head, saying, as always, that she had fallen, but admits that's probably what she died from. She admitted to police that she had abused Jeanette and that she should have just picked up smoking, but the things Jeanette did just got to her. On a daily basis, Angela reminded her children what happens in this house stays in this house. As if it couldn't get any worse, Jeanette's sister said on multiple occasions her mom would have her go into the backyard to collect dog poop and would then smear it all over Jeanette's face. Angela not only punished Jeanette when her siblings tried to help her, but she forced her siblings to be a part of their sister's abuse. It wasn't just Angela, though. Jeanette's sister also implicated Richard, saying that he would also keep food and water from her, would also beat her with shoes, and if Jeanette ever disobeyed him, would report back to Angela for further punishment. Richard actually took the stand next and testified against his wife, saying that she controlled the entire house, including him, that she had control over his money, car, the cabinet, and the bathroom keys. The bathroom was locked on the outside to prevent Jeanette from sneaking drinks of water, and she was supervised the few times she was rarely allowed to use it. Everyone else in the house had to ask Angela to unlock the door before they could use the bathroom. All of the cabinets containing food were also padlocked, and Richard testifies that Angela would keep account of everything in the refrigerator to make sure that Angela didn't take anything. According to the registered guard, Richard says he didn't seek help for Jeanette because he was recovering from open-heart surgery following a heart attack and that he was afraid of his wife, saying he waited 32 years to be married to the devil. Which is frankly bullshit. Sure, he did have a heart attack, and sure, he did have open-heart surgery, but Jeanette's abuse was a lifelong battle for her, and her only refuge was that five-and-a-half-year stint in the foster care system. At any point in time, over the many years of torture his stepdaughter endured through him and his wife, he could have stopped. He could have sought help, but he didn't. But Richard's testimony continues. According to the outlet, he says that outside of the shoes Angela used to beat Jeanette, she also used sticks, belts, her own foot, and other various items, and also tortured her with pliers and forced her daughter to drink from the dog's bowl and the toilet. 
According to Thought Co., Richard says that Angela tried cleaning up the house before calling 911 and even wanted to bury her instead. A cause of death had yet to be released and was hard to come by. From what I could find, Jeanette was suffering from pneumonia, had a quarter-sized hole in the back of her head, was emaciated beyond belief, and had open wounds throughout her body, where decaying skin had been trimmed from the wounds, exposing Jeanette's hip. The wounds were trimmed while she was still alive, in her parents' effort to avoid having to seek treatment. According to Oregon Live, Angela admitted to trying to use iodine and bandages to treat Jeanette's wounds, even though oftentimes her bones were exposed. ThoughtCo reports that the doctor who received Jeanette at the hospital the night she died said that her face was disfigured from bruising. There were scars and deep wounds around her head, legs, and back, and one of her femurs was exposed. The doctor reported that Jeanette's front teeth were broken and that her lips were quote-unquote pulverized. In the end, Jeanette's heart just couldn't keep up with her mounting injuries, illness, and trauma, and it simply stopped. The jury was shown the gruesome photos of the 15-year-old's 50-pound body, and they cried. Once the testimony was over, KVAL reports that the jury was asked to consider the following questions before deciding on whether or not she would receive life in prison or be sentenced to death. The following questions were, was Angela's conduct that caused Jeanette's death deliberate? Is it likely that Angela will reoffend? Did Jeanette provoke her mother? And should the death penalty be imposed? And no, you're not the only person whose brain just exploded over question three. Did this 15-year-old provoke her mother to torture, maim, and starve her to death? I don't think so. On February 25th, 2011, after only six hours of deliberation, the jury unanimously ruled that Angela would become the only female on death row in the entire state of Oregon. As reported by the Register Guard and Oregon Live, she will get a single change of clothes three times a week and is only permitted out of her cell for showering, very limited exercise time, religious practices, and time with her legal counsel. She will eat every single meal for the rest of her life alone in her cell after it's passed through a tiny hole in her door. Richard had his trial shortly after his wife was given her death sentence, and like Angela did, he too changed his plea. Richard pled guilty to murder by abuse and was given the mandatory minimum of at least 25 years in prison. In August of 2011, Jeanette's younger sister asked not to be put up for adoption and to remain in foster care with the family who had been raising her since her sister was murdered, and the family was more than happy to keep her. Jeanette's biological father, Anthony, filed a wrongful death suit against the state of Oregon and requested $1.5 million in damages, and he got it. And while everyone seems in agreement that a wrongful death suit was warranted after the state failed Jeanette time and time again, it definitely rubbed a lot of people the wrong way that her biological father was awarded such a huge sum of money after not being involved in the last 10 years of Jeanette's life. He told Oregon Live that it wasn't like he needed the money and almost like he didn't want it knowing where it came from and says that he takes responsibility for not being there for his daughter. The system failed Jeanette. They know it. 
We know it, and something has to change. Something has to change for the Jeanette Maples of the world, for the Noah Tomlins of the world, for every child who is consistently abused just to be returned back to their abuser. The goal of DHS seems to almost always be family reunification, but what if that's not what's best for the child? If you ever suspect abuse, please report it, even if it feels trivial, even if you feel like you might be overreacting. You never know if your report is the one someone is going to finally respond to. Tell the school, tell the police, make sure all the agencies who can make a difference have the information to do so, and please follow up. If you don't know who to call, you can always call the Child Help Hotline at 1-800-4-A-CHILD or 1-800-422-4453. Please never stay silent. Always use your voice to advocate for those who cannot advocate for themselves. For all photos pertaining to this case, check out Jeanette's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley and join me there tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern where you go live with me and we talk about today's case. If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month. All your episodes are ad-free, and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch. And of course, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. I'll be bringing you a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. Mm-hmm.